What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. In the studio, I'm joined by my co-host, Austin. Yo. How's it going, man? And behind the scenes, we got Daniel, who is mute today because uh, he literally lost his voice. Today, we're going to be covering the murder of Carrie Ann Jopik. And what's especially interesting about her case is that it was a cold case for nearly 30 years before her killer actually confessed to her murder. And when he did, he said the reason for doing so was because he was haunted by her. And it just got to a point where he couldn't take it anymore and he had to get it off his chest, or so he says. So it's interesting because I've always wondered about killers, especially those that murder multiple individuals. We're talking serial killers. And if in prison, are they haunted by not only the memories of what they did, but by the actual victims themselves. And obviously this is kind of a controversial point of view of like, are people actually haunting other people when they're murdered? But I think it's something you have to consider because when you look at paranormal hauntings, you you look at places where these events happen. Oftentimes there's paranormal activity that's reported there because of these violent acts that were committed. And, you know, whatever that is, is, is another thing, whether it's residual energy from that, you know, that exchange between those two humans, or if that, in fact, that person's soul or spirit is in fact trapped there because of just the brutality of the event that happened there. And so there, or there, you know, maybe there's an option to haunt whoever does you wrong, I guess, in those circumstances. Yeah. If I got murdered, that'd be great if I could haunt the dude I mean, you that would think killed that, me right right yeah. you would think that that would be an, an option so this case is very very interesting in that regard and we actually have a few other examples we'll mention of other cases where the killers have been haunted by their victims but today we're going to be specifically focusing on the murder of carrie ann jopik she was born in milwaukee wisconsin on august 17th 1968 she could sing, she could draw, she had so much potential. Her body was found under a porch on the city's south side in 1982. There were no eyewitnesses and no more suspects. Murders being haunted by the spirit of their victims is way more common than you would guess. Decades went by and there were still no answers. Supposedly even Al Capone was haunted by one of his victims. But 33 years after Carrie's death, a stranger made a call to a local news station. He befriended our family afterwards, during the years. A journalist named Will Myers. A WISN 12 News was covering the early shift. I don't think he's sorry. He answered a call from a man who said he was ready to confess to murder. To fully understand this case, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of Carrie Ann Jopek's life. She was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on August 17, 1968, and her parents were Carolyn, who went by Carol, and Robert Jopik, and they divorced when Carrie was young. Her mother then remarried a man named Frederick Toussignant, who went by Fred, and Carrie grew up in Cudahy, Wisconsin, just south of Milwaukee, and from a young age, Carrie had dreams of becoming a veterinarian when she grew up. Her childhood friend, Margie Story, thought Carrie was fun, outgoing, intelligent, and she loved to sing. She also loved climbing on the shed and up to the cherry tree in the backyard. When her mother Carol would tell her to get down, she would stay up there for as long as she wanted. Her mother described her as a spitfire. When she was 13, she didn't always get along with her stepfather Fred. They'd often get into heated arguments and Carrie would say things like, you're not my real dad. But many thought that this was just normal teenage rebellion behavior. By 1982, she and her friend Margie went to Kosciuszko Middle School. One day, they went to the mall and bought the same outfits and then had a sleepover at Margie's house. The next morning on March 16, 1982, they walked to school together dressed in the same clothes. They went to their separate classes, but around lunchtime, Margie saw Carrie in the hallway, and she noticed that she was crying while packing her things to go home. When Margie asked what was happening, Carrie told her a boy in her art class threw paint all over her shirt. So to get back at him, she punched the boy and got suspended for three days. Other reports said she was suspended for walking the halls without a pass. But Margie could tell Carrie was crying because of the suspension, but also because she was nervous about going home. 
There was no doubt her stepfather Fred would be angry, and there was a strong chance that they'd get into an argument. But Margie also thought Carrie might have gotten suspended on purpose. Supposedly there was a party for all the kids who skipped school at her friend Robin's house, just down the street. When Carrie got suspended around 1.30pm, the school called her mother Carol and gave her the option of picking Carrie up or letting her walk home. Carol let Carrie walk home because it was only a short walk to school, and she lived right around the block at 1929 South 10th Street. Plus, the historic Mitchell Street neighborhood was known as a safe neighborhood back in the 1980s. And the local kids walked to the school all the time. So after the phone call from the school, Carol waited in the living room for Carrie to get home. But as the hours passed, she started to get worried. At first, she figured Carrie was walking around the neighborhood or stopped by a friend's house on the way home. But after several hours passed, Carol realized there might be a problem. By 3 p.m., the school had already let out for the day and there was still no sign of Carrie. So Carol called Margie's house, but Margie said she hadn't seen her since lunchtime when Carrie got suspended. Carol then knocked on every front door between their house and the school asking if anyone had seen Carrie, but no one had seen or heard from her. By that night, Carol then got Carrie's younger sister, Maggie, and about 30 neighbors to search the neighborhood for her. They printed off several flyers and went door to door, asking if anyone had seen Carrie. They were each assigned to a street to search, but they came up with nothing. Carol also filed an official missing persons police report with the local police department. When they got her description, they sent squad cars out into the neighborhood. They were looking for a 13-year-old, about 5'3 and 96 pounds. She was wearing a white cloth jacket, a white shirt, brown jeans, and white shoes when she was last seen. Police also reached out to everyone they could, including friends, family, schoolmates, and teachers. But by the very end of the day, there was still no sign of Carrie. Like police did in many cases in the 80s, the investigators first thought that Carrie had just run away. She didn't have the best relationship with her stepfather, and maybe she was too scared to go home after getting suspended. When Carol called the police station for a follow-up on their search, they told her there were so many other runaways that they couldn't only focus on her daughter. But Carol never believed that Carrie ran away. Even though she was a rebellious 13-year-old, she knew her daughter well, and this wasn't like her. She thought Carrie might have gone to her father's house in Milwaukee. But when she called, Robert told her he had been at work all day when Carrie had disappeared, and he hadn't seen her at all. Carol trusted him, so they crossed him off the list. Carol and her daughter Maggie also went searching every day after school, and sometimes they were out until 10 p.m. Carol also went to the Milwaukee Journal and asked if they would put a picture of Carrie and a missing persons notice in the newspaper. Even though the police were convinced Carrie was a runaway, they still kept the case open as a potential abduction, and the only suspect at the time was her best friend's brother, John Mant. He had lived just down the street in between Carrie's house and the school. He was 17 years old at the time, and the police noticed he had a criminal record of petty theft and drug possession. One officer also called him the neighborhood troublemaker. Supposedly, he had made advances towards Carrie before. One report claimed he had groped Carrie's thighs, but he had denied any involvement in her abduction, and he had no idea what could have happened to her. Plus, there was no evidence that connected Carrie's disappearance to John, so they let him go. Another lead they followed involved Carrie's stepfather, Fred. Police had received an anonymous tip that Fred was somehow involved. The anonymous tip told police that Fred had just installed a large cement slab on his property for a patio in his backyard, so they thought he might have hidden Carrie's body inside the cement or beneath it. Police thought that the tip was from a paranoid neighbor. Even though Fred and Carrie didn't always get along, he had no reason to harm her. He had raised her and loved her like a daughter, but police still looked into it. They went out to the patio and used ground-penetrating radar, but found nothing. As days passed, the case seemed to be going nowhere. There were no eyewitnesses and no more suspects. They interviewed family, friends, and school faculty. They even thought Carrie might have had a secret boyfriend that she didn't tell her family about, but there was no evidence to support that theory. There was also rumors of a house party at the man's house on the day of her disappearance. Some said that they had seen Carrie there, but there wasn't a shred of physical evidence to support that. So the investigation again ran into a dead end. All they had was speculation and local gossip. Police began to settle with the theory that Carrie ran away from home and that was all. But Carrie's family, especially her mother Carol, would never believe it. 
The family held a public appeal and asked anyone to come forward if they had any information about her. A few people responded and reported seeing Carrie after March 16th. Some even claimed that they had seen her in California. Others said that they had seen her in other neighborhoods around Milwaukee. Even Carol thought she saw her daughter walking down the street one day, and when she called out to the young girl that looked like Carrie, the girl immediately ran away. Police followed up on some of the sightings, but they came up with nothing. As much as the investigators wanted to inform the family that they had found new information, they had absolutely nothing. Carrie's case file was eventually shelved, and the case went cold. Over a year passed, and Carol slowly became convinced that her firstborn daughter, Carrie, was dead. And on September 2nd, 1983, a single phone call opened the case back up. A construction contractor was out to the Mant family home. This was Carrie's best friend's Robin's house. It was also the house where the supposed party had taken place on the day of Carrie's disappearance. They had hired a contractor to demo the back porch and level out the soil so they could grow a lawn. The contractor was leveling out the dirt when he noticed a rotten smell. As he pushed his shovel down into the ground, he struck something very hard. At first, he thought it was a rock. When he pulled back the shovel, there were strands of long human hair mixed in with the dirt. As he gently moved around the soil only five inches beneath the surface, he then uncovered a human skull. He immediately called emergency services and they rushed over to the house. The entire neighborhood heard the sirens and watched as squad cars and ambulances pulled up to the man's house. Carol walked down the street and stood in front of the house with the rest of her neighbors. Eventually, they saw a first responder take a body bag toward the backyard. Carol then saw Carrie's best friend Robin outside. She went up and asked her if she had seen anything when she was in the backyard, and Robin told her she saw a white jacket in the dirt. At that exact moment, Carol knew in her heart that her daughter's body had been found. She remembered that Carrie was last seen wearing the white jacket. Carol then tried to cross the police tape, but the police stopped her. When she explained to the officers she believed her daughter was back there, they told her to head home for the day, and they would contact her later. Even though it would take some time to identify the remains, everyone had a pretty good idea whose they were. After this gruesome discovery, the entire neighborhood was in shock. No one ever expected something horrific like this to happen in the historic Mitchell Street neighborhood. And now all the neighbors gossiped about how John Mant was obviously the killer. After the remains were moved to the coroner's office, police called in Carol to identify what was left of the body. And without a doubt, she was certain it was her daughter's. Even though her body was badly decomposed, she recognized her daughter's clothing buried with the remains. Four days later, they officially identified Carrie through her dental records. Carol thought it was a bit of relief since she didn't have to worry about looking for her daughter anymore, but now a bigger wound was opened. Her worst fear was realized, and she couldn't understand who would have wanted to kill her daughter, or why. During the autopsy of Carrie's remains, they determined she died from internal bleeding inside her skull from head and neck injuries. She suffered from intracranial hemorrhaging and lacerations to her left vertebral artery. Her C1 vertebrae was broken, which is the closest vertebrae towards the cranium. And you see that in a lot of whiplash accidents, uh, just with the head moving extremely fast. There was an injury also to the left side of her skull, which could have been from a fall or an intentional homicide. I also want to point out, as far as I looked into the records, even though we know that the contractor Right. his shovel into the ground and, and struck the skull. I don't know if they ever accounted for that in the autopsy. So they're like, was this the contractor's damage mm. to the remains or was this still when she was alive? Because it's extremely hard to tell in that case. Um, but as far as I could find out, they never noted which one could have been the contractor and which one was before she had passed. I'm not, oh, so I'm weird. not sure on that. Oh. Um, but in the end, the coroner ruled the death as, quote, undetermined. So Carrie's death wasn't technically a homicide. There was a chance she just fell and died, but obviously someone had still buried her body. So that was pointed to why? So homicide. why? If it was, yeah, I mean, it, to me, that would scream homicide. Because right. if somebody accidentally fell and died, 
why on earth would you bury her in the backyard? Exactly. So even though the autopsy was technically undetermined, the fact that her body was buried. Yeah, that's strange. You, I would feel like since she was found buried in the backyard, they would immediately just rule it a homicide yeah, for yeah. the sake of the investigation. Because whenever you put a case into undetermined, I mean, it is very, it's sometimes difficult to have that case move forward as far as the investigation goes. Because a lot of times police will be like, well, well, that's undetermined death, so we can't necessarily continue to investigate it as a homicide, even though foul play is suspected. Right. Which I, I get why they do it, um, why they have that classification, because obviously there's times where they don't really know and you just have to put undetermined. But oftentimes it hinders the investigation from going forward or getting the resources that it needs to actually solve the case. Right. So I, I, I just feel like in this case, it's not like her body was found just like out in the woods somewhere where maybe she might have just fell by accident and died and then decompose there but she was literally buried so this wasn't a cemetery this isn't you know anywhere like that clearly somebody buried her for a reason to try to hide what happened before that yeah. or how so she died that was the biggest indication that it was a homicide because from the autopsy they were like well we can't rule out the fact that maybe she just did accidentally die and I guess, yeah, there is a chance that someone just freaked out and buried her body yeah. for whatever reason. You know, there is that chance. Right. But. And I mean, luckily in this case, you know, now that investigators had Carrie's body, they knew that they had to look into this more as, you know, potential homicide. So obviously her body was found at the Mant property at 1944 South 10th Street. And police wanted to figure out, did anybody see anything? because now things were kind of starting to come together around the timeline of Carrie's disappearance. And more eyewitnesses actually came forward and told police that John had thrown a party on March 16, 1982. The police had heard about this supposed party when the investigation first started, but there was no physical evidence from the party. There was no pictures from that night and only eyewitness accounts. Supposedly the partygoers were high school students and some graduates from the year before. Eyewitnesses claim that John was definitely there, and others claim that they saw Carrie too. Everything still pointed at John Mant as the primary suspect. Even the contractor told police that when he first discovered Carrie's body, he happened to look over his shoulder, and he saw John staring at him. Once he noticed John, and John noticed him, John ran back into the house, and the contractor heard him vomiting several times. Police couldn't tell if John got sick from you know, the shock of seeing a body buried in his yard, or if his reaction was a sign of guilt. But they brought him into the station for further questioning. He was calm, and again, he denied any involvement in Carrie's disappearance. When they asked him why he vomited when he found the body, he told them that obviously it was just a shocking image to see. After they pressed him a little bit more, he then requested a lawyer. And obviously, once that happens, that shuts all questioning down. And since they didn't have any other evidence to charge him with anything, they ended up letting him go. Four days after they discovered her remains, a neighbor contacted police and told them about a young man named Jose Ferreira, who went by the nickname Junior. He was 16 years old and people saw him as an outcast in the neighborhood. Apparently, this guy drank heavily and also practiced witchcraft, which concerned a lot of the parents. One of the neighbors spotted him crying near the spot in Mant's backyard where they discovered Carrie's remains. They saw him holding his arms in the air, crying and screaming. He knelt next to the burial site like he was praying. And the neighbor overheard him saying things like, I'm so sorry, Carrie. Jose had lived at 1929 South 10th Street right across the street from Carrie's house. And this was only two houses down from John Mant's house. After this tip from the neighbor, police brought Jose in for questioning. And just like John, Jose denied any involvement in Carrie's murder. He said the only reason he was so upset at the burial site was that Carrie was his friend. He also claimed he was depressed because he had just broke up with his girlfriend. And that was all they could get out of him. So again, they had to let him go because they had no further evidence to keep him. No one knew exactly what type of relationship Jose and Carrie had when she was still alive. But after the police released him, 
Jose grew really close to Carrie's family. He'd often show up at the family game nights, and Carrie's parents would invite him to dinner. They described him as a friendly young man, and they didn't think twice about what kind of relationship he had had with Carrie. Just like the family, he was in pain over her death, so they mourned together. And over time, it was like Jose had become a new addition to the Jopic family. Years went by, and Carol never got over her daughter's death. I mean, how can you? And Jose was always there to help her grieve. As for the case, there was still no physical evidence connecting a suspect to the crime. And once again, Carrie's murder case went cold. Several years passed, and in 1989, Milwaukee police got a call from Dodge Correctional Institute, a maximum security prison in Wapen, Wisconsin. One of the inmates wanted to talk about a crime back in 1982, and this inmate was Thomas Luker, an ex-boyfriend of Carrie's friend Robin Mant. He told the police that John Mant had killed Carrie that night, and her body stayed in his basement for two or three days before John buried her. Police then brought Robin in for questioning, and she confirmed that she had dated Thomas but said his story was untrue. Robin never believed her brother John had anything to do with her friend's death. Police also suspected that Thomas would say anything to reduce his prison sentence, as this happens all the time. And like always, there is still no physical evidence to support anyone's claims. Years passed and the Mant family moved out of the historic Mitchell Street neighborhood, and for the third time the case went cold. But Carol still believed that one day, there would be justice for her daughter. To give you a little bit more perspective on this case and exactly how Carol feels, I'm going to put a little montage of some of her interview clips right here. She has so much potential and everything was taken away from her. I kind of blame myself because I, I said she could go by herself because we only lived a half a block away. I believed her, you know. Such a pretty girl, though. Oh, My baby. Decades went by, and there were still no answers. But 33 years after Carrie's death, a stranger made a call to a local news station. On October 11, 2015, around 7 a.m., a journalist named Will Myers at WISN 12 News was covering the early shift. He answered a call from a man who said he was ready to confess to murder. And it was none other than 50-year-old Jose Ferreira. Will thought the call might have been a prank at first, but when Jose started getting into details, Will rushed to get his manager. And while they listened to the confession, WISN News Director Chris Gag later said, His story was very detailed, disturbingly so. That same day, Jose called a crisis hotline counselor and confessed his murder to them, too. Then he told the counselor he wasn't sure if he wanted to go out in a blaze of glory or in silence. He wanted to make sure his crime made it to the news first, and he wanted an interview with Kathy Michaelby, Milwaukee's longest-serving TV news anchor. He then made a call to his estranged wife, Brenda, as she was currently in the process of divorcing him. Supposedly, he believed that if he confessed his crime, she would take him back. And so he told Brenda everything, saying that he had killed Carrie Ann Jopic back in 1982. But this wasn't the only problem she had with Jose. Their relationship had been a disaster for years. She had filed a temporary restraining order against him in 1999, the same year he was convicted of disorderly conduct. And allegedly, he had a severe drinking problem. The assistant DA, Carl Hayes, later said that he believed Jose had hit rock bottom in 2015, so he began calling everyone and confessing his crimes after suffering from severe mental illness and binge drinking all day. After his confession, the journalist, the counselor, and the estranged wife all contacted the police. The journalist and counselor called the police station on the phone, but Brenda personally visited the West Milwaukee police station. Since the case was so old, the police had to dig through their files to find Carrie's case file. It was extremely rare to have someone confess to a crime three decades after the fact, so police needed to verify his confession with the case file information because they weren't sure if this was just a desperate man's cry for help. But sure enough, they noticed Jose's name in the original case file, Jose Edward Ferreira Jr., who also went by the nickname Junior. 
He was a teenage boy seen praying and crying near the burial site in 1983. On October 13, 2015, police asked if he would come in and talk with him. They weren't sure if he would, but he agreed. When he arrived, police noticed he was polite and cooperative, and once they got him into the interrogation room, he immediately confessed. He told investigators everything he could remember starting from the beginning. According to Jose, on March 16, 1982, Carrie was on her way home that evening after being suspended from school, and she eventually ended up back on her street heading home. She heard loud voices and music coming from the man's house, so she decided to stop by. Other schoolmates, especially upperclassmen, were inside, including Jose. John Mann's house had become the hangout spot for everyone who skipped school that day. Jose had been drinking Yukon Jack whiskey mixed with soda, and at one point, Carrie came up to him and asked if he had a cigarette. He told her no, but he did have a marijuana joint that he was willing to share. After sharing a few hits together, Jose wanted to take Carrie down to the basement and make out. At first, she agreed, and they headed towards the basement doorway, but she suddenly changed her mind when she got to the top of the stairs, and when she stopped for a moment, she then turned to Jose, and her last words were, I don't know if this is a good idea. Jose looked at her and said, we're going down the stairs, but she wouldn't budge, and in a burst of anger, he shoved her down the basement stairs. He pushed her with such force that when her head hit the stair railing, her head snapped backward. Her neck broke and she died instantly. Jose watched as she tumbled down to the basement floor. He thought she was just knocked unconscious. And once he got down to the basement floor, he dragged her so she was lying flat on the ground. And he said to her, You are such a beautiful girl. And then he started fondling her breasts. Some reports claim that he had sex with her but it's unclear what actually happened. In his call to the crisis hotline, he said he had quote-unquote had his way with her. At some point, he finally realized that Carrie wasn't breathing. He then grabbed her shoulders and shook her, but she didn't respond. Then he lifted her slightly off the ground and noticed that her head wobbled and swiveled around until it was facing backwards. He knew her neck was broken and that Carrie was dead. So he began to freak out. He considered leaving Carrie's body in the basement and he hoped people think, you know, she accidentally just tripped and fell down the stairs. But he realized several other partygoers had already seen him with Carrie that night and the police would most likely come after him. So he decided to hide the body. While the party was still going on upstairs, he wrapped her in a dry cleaning bag and dragged the body across the basement floor to the cellar door that led to the backyard. After hauling her body outside, he dug a shallow grave near the back porch and dumped Carrie's remains inside. Jose confessed that it took him about 45 minutes to dig the grave and bury her, and no one from the party came outside to the backyard since the March weather in Milwaukee was close to freezing temperatures. After he was done burying the body, he went home and confessed to his brother Angel, and Angel told him to never tell anyone what happened that night. When other students later asked him what happened to Carrie, he said he had no idea. Police asked if anyone else was involved, but Jose said no, and they believed him since there was no evidence to incriminate anyone else. But even after his confession, there was still not enough physical evidence to suggest that Jose was involved. As far as they knew, he could have been lying about everything, but his confession was all investigators had to go on. So, they decided to charge Jose with second-degree murder. After his confession, Carol finally had some closure after 33 years of not knowing what had happened to her daughter Carrie, but now she had to deal with another emotional wound. Ever since her daughter's death, she had become friends with Jose, and now she knew he was the man that murdered her daughter. Carol saw this as the ultimate betrayal. This man had grieved with her over Carrie's death for decades. He joined them for dinner, played games with them, and talked about their daughter and cried with them in their home. Carol always blamed herself for her daughter's death, and this whole time, Jose had kept this horrific crime a secret. Supposedly, Jose had been hinting at his crime for years. Allegedly, he once told Carol that he had seen Carrie on the night of her disappearance with a group of people at the man's house. He also told Carol that other high schoolers said Carrie fell down the stairs that night, and that's how she died. Sometime later, he also told her in secret that Carrie's spirit haunting him. 
He told Carol that he had constantly seen the spirit of her dead daughter. He might have been trying to confess a secret in these private moments. In the end, Carol believed that her daughter had solved her own murder from the grave. She later said, quote, Carrie was haunting him. She kept on until it worked. She was persistent. A very persistent child she was. You mentioned earlier that you know this happens more often than we think. Uh, murders being haunted by the spirit of the victims is way more common than you would guess. And there are several cases that involve this. Mark Bridger abducted, sexually assaulted, and murdered a five-year-old girl back in 2012. Her name was April Jones. He was later sentenced to life. But while in prison, he had told another inmate that he often saw April's apparition appear in his cell almost every night. Wow. In 2013, a 30-year-old man named Victor Amiwaga shot and killed two taxi drivers in Ghana. Ever since, the second victim's ghost began haunting him. The man who he killed began appearing in his dreams, and he even slapped him while he slept. It got to the point where Victor never got any sleep, so he finally confessed to a friend about the murders, and he was later sent to prison. Supposedly even Al Capone was haunted by one of his victims. Back in 1929, there were seven members of the Northside Gang, which was Al Capone's rival gang at the time, and they met in some garage in Chicago. One of the men was James Clark, and all seven of them were massacred by four other men. Two of the four were disguised as police officers, and it's believed that this was Al Capone's gang who was making this big hit on seven of the rival gang members. So the massacre was never solved, but still many believe the hit was ordered by Al Capone, and later his prison guards, once he was sent to prison, they, they reported hearing blood-curdling screams coming from his cell. And supposedly he was always shouting the name Jimmy, and he kept yelling to leave me alone, leave me alone, even though the prison guards would run over and there was no one in there but Al Capone. I do know he had a pretty severe case of syphilis by the end of his life, especially when he was in prison. Um, it was called syphilitic paresis. Also, it used to be called syphilitic insanity, which is a mm. neuropsychiatric disorder. So this might have influenced something. So people that, are like, that's oh, interesting because like one of the things I was going to bring up when talking about having your victim haunt you is, is it an actual haunting that's occurring? And it's, you know, actually, you know, physical manifestations of, of the spirit, or is this a case of mental health right right? like because even with jose he had mental health issues he's drunk and Mm -hmm. so what's actually happening there right is it just you know is this undiagnosed mental health disorders where they're hearing things and seeing things hallucinations or is this a real paranormal event right yeah that's the question is it like this manifestation of guilt that's tacked on to your mental illness or yeah, or is it actually apparitions that are showing up? Um, he eventually got out of prison. He was treated, but the damage to his brain was was already permanent by that time. He even hired a medium to try and cleanse him of the haunting, but she was unsuccessful. Later, in probably the last few years of his life, Capone's bodyguards would overhear him begging someone to leave him alone, but he was always just by himself. And Al Capone even confessed to his bodyguards in secret that the ghost of James Clark had been haunting him for years. Wow. I I think that's maybe the strange thing is like, if it is mental illness, it would be obviously, you know, we're not professionals here, but I think it's interesting that it was the same guy though. You know, it wasn't just this random stuff, but yeah, it's very specific. Yeah. It was always Jimmy James, you know, Jose, it's all, you know, always Carrie and yeah, it's, it's, I mean, there's obviously no way to know for sure either way, but it is weird that it is so specific, yeah. right? Like it could be anything, especially for Al Capone. I mean, tons and tons of, of crimes and murders and in his life. And it's this specific person that is continuing. You know, it's not like it's cycling through different people. It's right. just Jimmy it's, over and over again. He had probably called the hit on a ton of people back then, but yeah, it was always Jimmy. Yeah, and it's just like it, it begs the question of, I mean, there's so many questions around this whole whole topic, but if after you die, 
if there is an option to linger here or if lingering here is directly associated with leaving the earth in in a violent way you know what i mean or, or in a way that is so traumatic and and horrific that you like you're not able to completely let go it's it's just such a interesting idea to me of cuz it's like when you think of a lot of hauntings it's usually centered around negative events violence it's not always the case so there's there's hauntings where the spirits are friendly and you know they're kind of there and you you think about those that see their loved ones yeah um that they've lost so it's not always this negative thing like being haunted by somebody doesn't always necessarily have to be associated with fear it can be associated with comfort and and a sense of of just joy even so yeah last episode you know we covered the marian apparitions right yeah that's like people believe that when you see that your air your prayers are being answered so yeah sometimes it is a positive thing so it to me i'm like is it i almost wonder if it's more of a manifestation by the individual by the killer in this case and because of all this mental trauma that they have from the things that they've done, if it's in fact creating this haunting, right. as opposed to the spirit of, of the deceased one sticking around to torment the individual. Cause it's like, why would you want to do that? You know right. what I mean? Like why not, if you're already passed, why would you want your, your spirit or soul to linger in this realm and not move on to whatever's next? And yeah, it's, I don't, I don't I wonder what, you know, I'm thinking like Carrie's well, mom's thoughts on this. Like, yeah, I mean, uh, she believed that it was kind of like her, yeah, the that's spirit so of her daughter. Carol was very religious. She thought that God really helped her compartmentalize a lot of her grief. And so I'm pretty sure she was convinced that it was uh, Carrie's spirit that basically solved the case. See that. And that's, what's interesting though. It's like, can people solve their own like solve their own murders from beyond the grave like is there like you don't want to leave your family with this because i mean that's the worst that's the worst possible scenario that i think any family could ever go through is not knowing what happened to your loved one knowing that they were murdered or they disappeared and you have no idea what happened to them yeah and so like is it a possibility that you're able to stick around in some form and in this case haunt the individual that did this to you in the hopes that eventually that individual breaks and confesses which i think if that were true i feel like we'd see there are a lot of cases of it but there's also a lot of cases where that's not 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 something that happens and and it makes me think about serial killers especially especially those serial killers that have zero remorse yeah, and they go, you know, they're in prison for the rest of their life and they're seemingly happy or like turning their life around, right? They find God and blah, blah, blah. And you know, they're able to move past all this. It seems, I mean, do we really know? No, but it seems that way Right. versus you would think serial killers would be call every single haunted. one of them would be. Yeah. Um, saying these sim- you know similar things yeah and yeah and the, uh, purely the, the length of time you know 33 years yeah so if you do believe in the spirit theory that would be a very long time for carrie's spirit to be hanging out here trying to right prove to the world it is a nice sentiment though i mean this idea of paranormal justice it's yeah kind of cool to think about that but and i can see how carol might feel better by that yeah it's like because she i mean obviously whenever something horrible and tragic happens to your loved one i mean you're you're the main thing is trying to make sense of it like why and even and when you're religious it's also difficult too because it's like you believe god has a purpose for all of us and all of our lives and yet my daughter's murdered and buried in somebody's yard what's the purpose behind that it's like trying to find the deeper meaning to tragedy is is always a a really tough 
tough thing, I feel like. And so to have this happen in the way that it did, it almost probably helped Carol deal with it. And For sure. Believing that her loved one was involved in solving this case, I mean, I think that would probably make you feel better. Yeah, absolutely. Knowing that. So, yeah, it's it's a this this whole concept of like like I like the term you use paranormal justice. Yeah, yeah. That's honestly like a great term for this because is there such a thing of paranormal justice? Is that real or is this all just mental things that are going on with the killers to the point where they're just you know they're overwhelmed with guilt, they're remorseful, and they just can't take it that they haven't told anybody because there's I mean there's some people that can't tell a lie right you can't no matter how hard they try oh yeah they people can't are terrible liars yeah can't do it so it's like is it that what's going on or right. is there something something more that we can't explain yeah so jose ferreira ended up being charged with secondary murder which had a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison his defense team of three lawyers wanted to play the angle that it was all just an accident so he pled not guilty here's a local news clip from the courtroom he wanted to go out in a blaze of glory, and so he called a suicide hotline. He called the Channel 12 News, and he wanted to have an interview with Kathy Michael Wee because he wanted to be someone. Ferreira was originally charged with murder, but right before the trial started, he pleaded guilty to lesser charges of sexual assault and false imprisonment. He received the maximum sentence of seven years. Jose claimed he had been suffering from mental illness for years. The defense also tried to pin the blame on John Mant, who hosted the house party, and they planned on getting Robin's ex-boyfriend, Thomas Luker, to testify. After all, he was a prisoner who claimed John had killed Carrie that night. During the hearings, more information came out about the autopsy report. The medical examiner came forward and said he believed Carrie's neck injury was most likely caused by a blunt object striking the neck, rather than a fall or a push down the stairs and the case began falling apart. Plus, there's basically no evidence in Carrie's murder case, and most of the evidence was circumstantial. And even though they had Jose's confession, the DA was still worried that it wasn't enough for a conviction of second-degree murder. Plus, they also had to worry about the statute of limitations. The statute of limitations is... You've probably heard of it several times, but it gets complicated because... Depending on the country, depending on the state, yeah, there's a lot of different, different laws. But in sum, it's, quote, a law that sets the maximum time the parties involved have to initiate legal proceedings from the date of an alleged defense, whether civil or criminal. So in lawsuits or in a crime like this. But, you know, a lot of people wonder, why is there even limitations on crimes? Because you would think, yeah, if someone murdered someone, they should be held accountable regardless of how long ago it was, right? There are several reasons this has become a law. It allows the courts and the police to focus on more recent crimes because they only have limited resources. Evidence can get misplaced over time. Also, especially exculpatory evidence can get lost over the years, which this is evidence that can prove the accused innocent. So let's say you had a receipt or there was CCT, uh, like an alibi, footage. like evidence to prove an alibi. Yeah, for... that you were across town or something somewhere in a totally different state of when the crime occurred. That would help you prove your innocence immediately. But 30 years after the fact, that it's footage gone. is gone. Yeah. The receipts are gone. Makes you know. Sense. Also, eyewitnesses pass away. You forget things over time. Like imagine 30 years. That's, That's a I don't long know how time. you can remember yeah. things for that long in detail. There are ways to extend the limits, but that all depends on the case and the state where the crime took place. As far as I could tell, Wisconsin actually has no limit on first and second degree intentional homicide. But in this case, I think the investigators were concerned because they had no evidence. It was just a confession. Plus the detectives who worked on the original case file, they were probably all retired by the time Jose even confessed. And so they eventually had to move forward with a plea deal. And here's a news clip of the plea deal and the charges. 
Good evening. Prosecutors explained to Carrie Ann Jopek's family there were some challenges if they were trying to pursue a murder conviction from a case stemming back from 1982. Now, with the family's permission, the prosecution offered uh, the option to Jose Ferreira Jr. to plead guilty to second-degree sexual assault and false imprisonment in exchange for no trial. Ultimately, Ferreira Jr. accepted that deal just before 4.30 this afternoon. So I did some digging and I could not figure out why there was an extension on the statute of limitations for these crimes. Because now that they took the plea deal for different crimes, they're no longer moving forward with second degree. But I assume that they changed this and the statute of limitations are no longer in play because it's a part of a plea deal. I am not a lawyer. <laughs> I've never passed the bar exam. This was really confusing and I could not figure out um, why this was the case. If you do know, if you are a lawyer, feel free to drop a comment in our YouTube channel. But I assumed that it was because it was a part of a plea deal that the statute of limitations That's were what no I'm longer assuming, in play. Yeah. So to put all this into perspective, when we're talking about time since all this happened, his sentencing date took place 35 years and one day after Carrie's death. Jose ended up being sentenced to seven years in prison. I actually have some footage we want to show you from his sentencing. And this particular case will make it quite clear to everyone in the community that no matter how old the case, we take these things very seriously. I can't take back how it happened. Sorry. From the deepest bit of my heart. Sorry. He befriended our family afterwards during the years, becoming friendly with my aunts, um, wanting to party with them, sitting at my Aunt Carol's, Carrie's mom's home, at their their table, pretending to to comfort us. I don't think you're sorry. No. And he no. proved with that mental illness, this is all that's going on. That that's was a guilt. Well, before, I don't think she could rest, you know. Her life was probably in limbo, you know. No, she can rest and we all can rest. I can't even imagine what Carrie's family must have been feeling when he was sentenced and hearing his very pathetic sorry really don't have much you know anything more to say than that just the fact that he after killing their daughter decided to befriend them probably just out of guilt to try to make himself feel better yeah thinking that that was going to help the feeling when in actuality he should have just went and turned himself in at that time and saved the family 30 plus years of grief and rather than leaving her family with the unknown of who murdered their daughter, he decided to go the selfish route and just do what was best for him and ultimately didn't, didn't help. I mean, I guess it helped him in the end because he got seven years. It, had he been, and, and this is the tough thing about this too, is that we don't know exactly how old he was. According to his confession, he said he was 16, 16. when he murdered Carrie. So some sources said 17, but so either way, was. he's a minor yeah. and he would have been tried as a juvenile, which they don't go that hard. Most likely. Right. And I mean, from the evidence, I mean, he probably would have still served some time in some way, shape or form. And it's just, it's sad that he waited this long. Yeah. For them to to get some form of closure, obviously there's never closure when you lose a loved one. But yeah, it just seven years too is like it feels like a small small price to pay for all of that. Seriously, that hurt that he caused yeah, his family so much pain. And I mean, at least we get during his sentencing, her mom Carol was like, at least we can all rest now, and Carrie can rest now, and that's I, I'm glad she has that outlook, you know. But it could have been much earlier. Yeah. Carol later said, quote, It's been 33 years since she's been gone. I've been praying for this day. At least we've got some closure out of it. And he's going to be sitting there. And Carol never truly believed Jose felt any remorse, like you just heard in that clip. He had sat across from her for years in her own home and never said a word. 
he had seen their pain for 33 years. And many thought that he had only come clean because his wife Brenda was threatening to divorce him, which I honestly think is a pretty good hunch. Even though he confessed like she wanted, Brenda still divorced him less than a month later. And again, after everything, Jose was only sentenced to seven years in prison. Because of the lack of evidence, he was never actually convicted of a crime involving Carrie's death. By 2022, Jose had only spent five years in prison before he was released. Today, he lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin under the active community supervision. And he has registered as a sex offender, as he should. So that brings us to the end. And we've we've talked about this a little bit, but do you think it was Carrie's spirit haunting him in this case? Or was this his own mental health, his own internal guilt and struggles yeah, that ultimately led him to confess? One of the assistant DAs, he was quoted saying, he's like, I think that Jose had just hit rock bottom in his life. He was drinking a lot. People think that he even confessed after binge drinking for a while. So he might have been drunk. His wife's divorcing him. He has nothing. He's felt guilty for so long. So maybe he just got to a critical point in his life where he's like, yeah, screw it. That's the thing is like, it's hard to believe the, the haunting because of how long, how much time passed, right? Yeah. Like that's a long time to be dealing. Like if that's actually what's happening and her spirit's coming to you and you're seeing apparitions, I feel like most people would crack after like a full year of that or, or two years or oh, something. Oh, I would crack or less so than that. fast. Yeah. Like a few weeks and you're yeah. like, okay, I got to stop. This is just, this is just too horrific. Yeah. It really does seem very convenient for him to finally come forward when, like you said, his whole life has hit rock bottom. And I mean, he was clearly very upset about his wife leaving him. So it seems kind of like this was just his personal, you know, opportunity to come clean and sort of allow himself to reset in that moment, as opposed to like actually giving a shit about Carrie's family. Cause right. clearly he didn't care about them at all. He was literally sitting at their kitchen table with them for years after this happened. And he kind of renegotiated once he actually confessed and they were like, okay, are we going to take this to trial? They're doing the hearings. I mean, he lawyered up. He had like a team, I think of three lawyers and they were like, oh, we're going to fight this. We're going to make it seem like this was an accident. We don't want you. So it didn't even seem like a genuine confession because then he kind of was like, I I take it back a little bit because yeah, the confession still stands, but also I'm going to have my lawyers come in here and defend the shit out of me so that I don't actually have to serve time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very convenient to come forward knowing statute limitations up all these things. Like you're not going to get charged with first degree homicide, which this is what that this was. Ultimately he pushed her down the stairs. Like that is murdering somebody. Yeah. I'm surprised that it took so long for this to get solved that it literally took him confessing to the murder for the police to solve this. I'm shocked that the police didn't solve this way before. I think they tried to cover their ass a little bit saying like, Oh, we didn't have any evidence. It was all, but there were those rumors of the house party. A lot of high school students were coming forward and saying, Hey, we saw the victim at this house with Jose, with Jose, when she disappeared, somebody John had Man's to have house. seen them go downstairs, right? Like you would How, think somebody would have seen them go to the basement and then all of a sudden they're gone. Yeah. Harry's gone. And you, if you look at this neighborhood, these houses aren't insanely big or anything. Even if someone had just accidentally fallen down the stairs, you think if there's enough people at the party, you hear a big crash in the basement. What? No one went to go look. I don't know. I'm just, I'm shocked that. I'm like, how did he even pull this off? And there, there had to have been some blood. I mean, she took, and that's, that's the thing too, is like, I don't even know if I believe that this is just like a push down the stairs. Like, it seems very convenient to be like, oh yeah, I pushed her down the stairs and maybe he did, but then I think he did more than that once he got to the bottom. I mean, he said he did do more when he got to the bottom. Right. But like, but you mean like, like attacking bludgeoned her, yeah. her yeah, and maybe he realized like, she's already dead or he thought she was dead because she was unconscious from the fall or hitting her head or something. And then he just 
yeah, it seems like he completely snapped when he got down there and did a lot more to her. And I'm like, did how how did he? Nobody went down there. Nobody heard anything. I right. mean, clearly there's a party music, and you know, there's always like, oh well, things can happen at a party. No one knows. True, which is true. But I mean, the time that it would take for him to push her down, then did what he did to her, then clean her, clean up the mess left from her then drag her out through the cellar door nobody's outside nobody sees i'm just shocked nobody sees him digging a 45 minute hole what the hell yeah no one's like no one where's dr- where's jose is yeah. he out having a cigarette or something right. like where is he right yeah, no one's 45 minutes plus the t- however much time elapsed while he was murdering her and sexually assaulting her nobody saw it and that's where i'm just like I feel like there's more people involved with this as far as like knowing what had happened. Yeah. That just never came forward because they're for fear of getting in trouble. Like I think there is a possibility that either Robin or John may have known about what had happened. Maybe not know the full extent, but knew something happened and Jose buried her in the yard. Yeah. And I, I get they're all stupid teenagers too, right? They're all yeah. 16 or 17 or some were even younger. Some were recent graduates. So what, they were 18 or something. But still at that same point, I don't know. You ever throw a house party, you kind of, it's not like you're monitoring everything that's going on, but what you hear a huge crash down in the basement. What, no one's looking. However many people were there. That was the other thing I couldn't find out. There was no report on how many people were yeah, at that party. Yeah, how many kids not in school or at this party right so like let's say there was a small amount then that would be even more of a case that someone would right. have heard it because there's not as much noise going on and, and you'd then be like where are those people yeah where'd jose go yeah if you only have like 10 people at this party to to leave for hour plus you're like where the hell they go right and nobody goes looking for them like oh i think they might have went downstairs nobody went downstairs and discovered the scene and that's where i'm just i really have a hard time believing that Jose at 16 years old was able to murder Carrie, then dispose of her body, dig a hole in the yard of the house. He's, it's not like he took her somewhere else in the exact yard where this party's taking place and not a single soul saw this. Yeah, that's insane. hard to believe. Yeah, hard to believe. And it sucks that this whole case with, you know, whatever, no physical evidence is uh the whole thing's on his confession that and it happened 33 years before which is also like you know i'm not a big fan of eyewitness testimony i don't i think memories are flawed i and i just now we have to believe this guy who had shoved this girl down the stairs and we have to believe his memory of three decades previous on him knowing what happened and what he was thinking and the words how accurate is he yeah i don't know i'm shocked at how many cases of runaways oh, ended man. up being murders yeah from from especially the 80s like it, it blows my mind i mean there's probably so many that are still unsolved to this day yeah. of disappearances during that time period where police were like oh it's just kids run away you know crazy kids they just want to do what they want to do we're not going to waste our time and resources ended up being abducted and, and murdered especially yeah. especially young girls i'm just like Young boys, maybe like you could believe that a little bit more, but like young girls where the parents are literally telling police, like my daughter would not just run off. Yeah. And they're like, well, probably just went to her friend's house. And then because it's like all the police had to do for this was do a tiny bit of investigating. You know, seal off the the house, the yeah. man's house. Imagine how interview fast everybody. Somebody would have cracked because I guarantee you somebody saw something. But if at the very least, if she they really think she just disappeared and she was seen in this area, they could have brought. I mean, if they had just brought a bloodhound or some type of tracking dog with her scent, they would have went right to her body. Even this house you, was not far from her house. Yeah, it was just like almost in right a shallow grave. We're not he, this guy. He didn't, five inches. You wouldn't even need a bloodhound at that point. You just get your eyes on the backyard and you say, hey, why fresh, is that? Why is there fresh dug up dirt right here? Yeah, God, that's boom. what's so crazy. Supposedly her hair, like even while the, the contract worker was out there uh, fixing the soil, there were reports that her hair was actually was already like coming out of the dirt. And he said he could tell the, the smell. 
And I'm like, how is the, how the man family, the man family was going through that back door, like up the porch and what they didn't notice. That's why I think they're fishy, man. I think they're fishy. I think they, they knew and they were worried about getting in trouble. And so they just like, Oh, I don't know. We don't know anything. Yeah. And cause it, it, what's suspicious to me is when they brought John Manton to, to interview him and he gets, you know, he eventually asked for a lawyer. Because I think they were starting to get, starting to kind of together, yeah. break through a little bit to, to get more information. And he knew what had happened. He knew what happened or knew that something happened to Carrie. I think that's a great point. How, as one of the man family members, do you not see a shallow grave in your yard, like dug up area and not be suspicious of it? I would be suspicious if I walked out my front door or out my back door and there was all this earth that had just been moved. You're like, I didn't do that. Yeah. Landscaper hasn't been here in a while. And this is a random spot, especially when I was a kid. I feel like I knew my backyard, like the back of my hand. I went out there every day to go play. Right. So yeah, if I noticed a huge body sized disturbed earth, it seems like you put two and two together. Right. This is, yeah, it's super suspicious. I think the man family absolutely knew what, what had happened. I think John knew what happened. And they just didn't want to get in trouble, so they just let it slide, which is so fucked up because this poor family could have had this completely solved, and Jose could have been dealt with at the time that this all happened. The police could have done significantly more investigating into this and put all the pieces. This is not a complex situation at all. No. This is not where somebody's abducted, taken to who knows where, and their body is disposed in you know nature where there's animals and stuff this is in a yard in a house that's a few doors down in the same neighborhood yeah where where all the other kids were saying hey there was a party there last night we saw her there and 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 it also lends to the fact that john obviously had other dirt on him too and maybe he was worried about other shit that he was doing getting out sure yeah and maybe maybe he had made advances on Carrie before. And so he was worried about that as well. I, I think that, yeah, there was a bunch of troublemakers all hanging out and they, no one wanted to snitch on each other. And so they were like, we're just going to not say anything and just hope this goes away. Right. And for all we know, John could have went and helped. I'm just like 40. I mean, to, I mean, she was 13. She's five foot three, I think. And she's not that big, but still, to dig a hole to fit a human being in, even at that size, has got to be decently sized. So I just am like, how did nobody see him digging a hole in the yard? Yeah, it doesn't add up. What? Damn. There's no way. Somebody saw him and just decided not to say anything because they didn't want to get in trouble or maybe they were worried. And the Thomas Luker, the inmate from the other prison, it seems like they wrote him off pretty fast. Yeah, where totally. I, I do and, think, yeah, some inmates are like, they just want to reduce their sentence. Totally. So they spill the beans. But that that seems like, I, I don't Maybe know. there is more credibility there. Yeah. Maybe it was a pretty. saying the truth. For yeah. all we know, John was involved. Right. We, did, we have no way to know that he wasn't other than his own word. Right. And again, the police, I just, I'm like, how the police find no evidence? There's no evidence. That means you just didn't even look for evidence because you thought this was a runaway case and not a, not anything more than that. And like you said, if, if you snap your neck and she had lacerations and she died from that, it was internal bleeding, but still you would think there would be, if they just took a moment to be like, Hey, the victim was last seen at this property with a bunch of delinquents. Yep. Let's get, let's get a warrant. They never got a warrant, you know? So like that all that physical evidence of course there's no physical evidence you weren't you didn't investigate where it happened no you didn't even go to the scene yeah you literally did nothing yeah and that's what's so sad about this is just the uh, the police did nothing yeah. and they could have solved this was a very solvable case i mean we're talking about a bunch of kids here yeah. that were up to no good and all it would take was a few interviews probably and you know some digging around the house and they would have been able to solve this so much sooner. So it's, I, I feel horrible for Carrie's family because they could have been saved of so many years of, of just grief. I mean, 
they obviously be grieving no matter what, but you know what I mean? Just this could have been so solved, put to rest so much sooner than it was. So yeah, it's, it's really a heartbreaking one, but I'm glad Jose got some, some form of punishment, but now he's out Yeah, and you know, he probably knew that, that this would be quick and easy. You know what I mean? An easy five years and you're out for murder. Yeah. The system's broken. But that's where I'm going to wrap up today's episode there. I do want to know your thoughts on this one for sure. What do you think? Do you think John Mant was involved? Do you think, you know, how do you think this went down? Because again, we don't, we don't fully know and we don't even fully have all the information from his confession because I don't think it's ever been released. Um, so yeah, let us know your thoughts on this one and your thoughts on general of can victims come back and haunt their killers? You think that's a, you know, paranormal justice? Is that a real thing? Let us know in the comments. Make sure you're following us on Spotify and subscribed on YouTube. We'd really appreciate it. But we'll see you guys next week for another episode. Until then, lights out, everybody. <laughs>